You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word as we open up to Colossians chapter 3. There we go, we got those lights. Colossians chapter 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will be happy to bring you one. Uh, We are continuing in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. And again, we have been defining this. If you've been here with us for a while, you can probably say this yourself. We've defined supremacy as that person or thing who in your heart or mind surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that person or thing in your life that you give permission to have authority over you. Now, in chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, Paul's been arguing that the only person that should have that level of authority is Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Paul was arguing that there are rip currents of false teaching in our culture that would seek to um, lure us away from the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is unpacking what it actually looks like to live under the supremacy of Jesus. What does it look like when Jesus rules and reigns over our hearts and in our lives? And so we're going to find here in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, Paul's going to make it very clear, very vivid for us. He's going to put his finger on some rather uncomfortable things for us today. And by the way, this is why we do expository preaching, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because this way we can't skip anything. God speaks, and he does it through his word. And this is what he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, for Christ is all and in all. Would you join me in prayer? Father... As we come to you this morning, we recognize that this is a challenging text, that it's probably going to hit on something in all of our lives. And so, Father, really the question this morning is, do we really want to live under the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Because if we say we do, then there are some moral and ethical changes that have to occur in our lives. And so, Father, I pray, God, today that our love for Jesus Christ would overwhelm any temporal desire that we might have to hold on to sin. Father, may Jesus be so magnificent this morning that our desire and our decision to put to death these, these things in life would, would just, it would be a non-issue. Father, help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, interestingly enough, the Romans had a curious custom during their day where if a criminal was convicted of murder they would sentence this criminal to life in a prison cell. But he would not last long because what they would do is as they would put the criminal uh, convicted of murder into a prison cell, they would actually chain him to the victim in which he had killed. Now, interestingly enough, the reason why they did this is it was severe and it was also effective. 
It was a very effective form of capital punishment because the gradual decay of the victim would, of course, ultimately lead to the eventual death of the criminal. Now, I share that with you to say this. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes this, If you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, then your old life apart from Christ is dead, buried, and gone with all its vices, all of its sins, all of its penalties, and all God's people said, okay, if our old life in Christ with all of its sin, vices, and penalties has been dead, is dead and buried, why then, church, would we resurrect it, unbury it, chain ourselves to it, and cause our own death? In other words, just like the Romans would take the criminal and chain them to the victim, causing the criminal's eventual death, when we go back to our old way of living, when we have come to Christ and we have been forgiven of our sins and we have been given a new life, oftentimes we go back to those things which caused our death in the first place. Are we tracking? And so Paul says here in the text, if you've been raised with Christ, why on earth would you go back to your old way of life and chain yourself to death? And so what he says here in this text, in verses 5 and 9, is he says this, put to death, death. Put to death the things in your life that cause death in your life. If you have been raised with Christ and you want to live under the supremacy and lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, then therefore you must put death, put to death the sins that will kill you. So we're going to unpack this a verse at a time. This is the first thing that he says. Number one, put your sin to death now. Verse five says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The reality is though we have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ, though God sees us and treats us the same way he sees his own son and treats his own son if we are his by faith, the reality is that we still are susceptible to the temptations of this world, amen? Our bodies, our eyes, our hands, our feet, our mind, our sexual organs are all instruments that we as believers can either offer to sin and wickedness or to God and holiness. It is now our freedom to choose where we offer our bodies to. That is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, to offer, to sacrifice your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. Amen? And so here's the thing. Paul says, if we are to live under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we must put to death these things, these urges, these impulses, these, and des- these desires toward wickedness and sin. And here's why. Because Jesus says we can't serve two masters. We can't say, you know what, today... I want a little bit of God, but I want a little bit of this too. You know what I'm talking about? I want want God, and I love God, and I cherish God, and I love what he gives me, but you know what? This thing over here, this tastes pretty good too, and I don't want to get rid of it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a person who um, drinks a lot of Diet Coke, but still wants to gorge in cake, right? It doesn't, they're not compatible, Like, if your goal and your desire is to lose weight, the Diet Coke and the cake can't go together. 
And what Jesus is saying is, if your ultimate desire and passion is this, in this life is to look like me and to live under my supremacy and to live under my lordship, then you can't say, I want a little bit of God and I want a little bit of sin too. We cannot serve two masters. Paul says, Paul says it like this, you're either dead to sin or you're dead in sin. Chapter three, verse five, put to death, therefore, be dead to sin, or chapter two, verse 13, and you were dead in your sin. Paul says you're either one or the other. You're either dead to your sin, or you're going to be dead in your sin. And what does he mean by dead for the Christian, for the person who loves Jesus? Well, when we refuse to put to death the sins in our lives, and Paul tells us frequently throughout Scripture that we deaden our affections for God. We deaden our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We deaden our ability to hear God's voice. We deaden our responsiveness to his will in our lives. We deaden our boldness in sharing the gospel with unbelievers. We deaden our love for one another. You see, the reality is either we're going to put sin to death or sin is going to put us to death. And we can't have both. And so what Paul says here in the text is like a diseased limb on a tree, it must be cut off. We cannot toy with sin, we cannot play with sin, and we cannot think that it can be part of a healthy diet. It can't be. So we must choose today, right now, to make a conscious decision daily. Am I going to obey the scriptures that I believe? Am I going to functionally live under the lordship and supremacy of Jesus? And if I am, what is that going to look like? Paul makes it incredibly clear here in the text. Look at what it says again, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? You know what I love about the scriptures? It's never lacking for clarity, amen? So let's go on to point number two, then put to death what? Okay, well, point number two, put to death these sins right now. Verse five says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Uh, By the way, those of you who came for the parent dedication, this is your first time here at Harvest Bible Chapel, Welcome, you get one of the most challenging sermons (laughs) in all of Colossians, amen? So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Drop down to verse eight. But now you must put put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving us two very specific lists. Uh, One regarding sexual sins, and another regarding relational sins. And so we're going to break them down one at a time. We're going to look at the sexual sins. Now, before we look at the list of sexual sins, here's what I want to say about sex and sexuality. Sex, sexuality, and sexual desire, can I get some agreement on this, is not evil and gross. Is not evil and gross. Okay? Um, Desire, sexual desire, has been hardwired in you by the God that made you. Okay, your sexuality is a part of being God's image bearer. Okay, 
Sexuality in you is not gross. It's a gift. If you crave that and you desire it, praise God, you are made in his image. Throughout all of scripture, further, God not only acknowledges that our sexuality is a part of who we are, but celebrates sexuality. If you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. In the book of Proverbs, it celebrates the proper use of sexual union. In the Song of Solomon, it's an entire book about the marriage covenant and a man and a woman madly in love with each other. Now, God celebrates sexuality throughout all of Scripture when it is used as he, here's the key, designed it. As God intended, and let me be very specific, in a monogamous, heterosexual, covenant relationship with one man, one woman. Doesn't get a ton of amens in our culture anymore, but I'm telling you, that is exactly what God has told us is the proper use of sexuality. Now, some will say, well, this feels archaic, this feels regressive, this isn't where our culture is at. Well, this is how we reflect the holy character of God whose image we have been made by. So let me then unpack now our context here as it says these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. What do all of these things mean? Well, okay, so sexual immorality, first of all, is an umbrella term, and it means anything outside of what God has defined as healthy sexuality. So premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, self-gratification, all of these things fall outside of the confines which God defines as healthy sexuality between a man and a woman. Now, some will even argue in this context, well, awesome, I, I, don't, I don't fall prey to any of those things. I'm good. Praise God, I can walk out of here, clean conscience. Well, unfortunately, Paul now takes it outside of the physical act into the heart and the mind. And that's why he gives us three more terms. He says, impurity, passion, and evil desire. Impurity is this callousness that I think many of us in the church have developed toward sexual immorality, a calloused indifference toward sexual immorality. And here's what I mean. The casual attitudes that we have toward the abuse of sexuality that we see all over in our culture, we just don't care anymore. It doesn't matter to us. And you can see that reflected in the amount of Christians that watch things like Game of Thrones or The Witcher or how many men and women are struggling with internet pornography. Even a couple of weeks ago when we had the Super Bowl halftime show, I'll be honest, I don't consider myself a prude, but maybe I am at this point in my life because I was shocked by what I saw. Now, what was interesting is when I got onto Facebook and I was reading what people, because a lot of people were saying, oh, this is unbelievable what we saw on the show. And then there were a lot of people like, well, that's just their culture. That's just Latin culture. And that's just the way it is for them. And that's how it is. And I, I, it began to dawn on me that even Christians who were having that argument were allowing the culture to define, let me make sure I got this right. We were allowing the culture to be the measure of our morality. And we were not calling Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His supremacy over us 
to be the measure of our morality and our sexuality. And the reality is, as soon as we start asking the culture to measure our morality and our sexuality for us, here's the thing, it's going to change every decade. Because the fact of the matter is, all of those people who think they are cultural progressives right now are going to be archaic and regressive in 20 years. They haven't gone far enough. Even the people that 10 years ago thought they were progressive and, and, and um, awesome are now considered regressive. Are we tracking? Then he goes on with this impurity, lust, or it might say in your ESV translation, passion. This is the sexual act that hasn't occurred. In other words, um, for you, maybe the sexual act has never occurred. You've never committed sexual immorality. But here's the thing, you wanted it to. You wanted it to in your heart. And what Paul says here in this context, and what Jesus reminds us in the Gospels is, we may not have acted out on our inner inner impulses and desires, but when we feed those inner impulses and desires, it's the same thing is actually acting on it. Lust. And then he says here in this context, and this is interesting, evil desires. Evil desires, when lust grows, it can grow into horrific appetites. This is where our lusts morph into sexual perversions, addictive behavior. And what I think Paul is saying here in this text is this. When we give ourselves to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and especially for the Christian who is actively fighting against these things. What we need to remember is this, and this is crucial. When you feed your inner impulses and desires, does it make it go away? Or does it make it stronger? And that's what happens, is when we feed our inner impulses and desires, it turns into these evil impulses. What Paul says is, evil desires. It just grows and becomes stronger and more perverse and more corrupt. Now, we ask ourselves, why is it that we must put these things to death? Because a lot of us will say right now, and especially some of us in our younger generation might say, well, you know, these are sins that don't hurt anybody else. They're just between me and God. What is the big deal? Well, the reality is you may think you're not hurting anybody, but you actually are. Let me show you why. It says here in the text, On account, uh, I'm sorry, verse five, that we must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and look at that word, covetousness. It might also be translated the word greed. Now, what this text is saying is this. When we engage in these sexual sins, we turn people who are made in the image of God and God values because he made them We turn them into objects to feed our own selfish, personal, sinful desires. We use people. We dehumanize them. We rob them and strip them of their value when we turn them into into an instrument for our own selfish gratification. Does that make sense? We dehumanize people. And then he goes on to say, here's the other reason why it's not just hurting you, it's hurting God, because this is idolatry. We dethrone God. 
when we act on these sexual impulses and desires. We elbow God out of the center of our lives when we engage in these sexual sins, and it gives sexual sins the centrality in our lives, the exact spot that God is supposed to be. The reason why we are supposed to put these things to death is, number one, they dehumanize other people. We rob and strip people of their value when we use them for our selfish gain. And number two, it dethrones God. And if we are intent on actually allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives, he says these two things are completely and utterly incompatible. Now he goes on to another list of sins, relational sins, verse 8. He says this in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. And he goes into another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, okay? Now, these are the sins that come out in our relationships and specifically in our words. Um, Anger and wrath. Anger is this simmering resentment that builds up over time that mounts from things like um, perceived slights, unmet expectations, unkept promises. And when those things start to mount... And they are undealt with. Married couples who have been married for a long time, this is all for us, guys. For those of you who are in committed friendships, this is all for us. There is no enduring relationships without forgiveness. But to have forgiveness, you have to address the issue. And when you don't, those perceived slights, unmet expectations, and unkept promises turn into anger and rage. Anger is that simmering implosion where one day you emotionally just shut yourself off to the other person because they have failed you too many times. Are we tracking? The rage thing is the Mount Vesuvius explosion that destroys relationships and destroys families. He goes on to say, we got to put these things away, not just anger and wrath, but malice and slander. That's our anger toward others that oozes out in deception and lies to hurt their, to hurt their reputation. And then he says here in, in this context, filthy, uh, obscene talk and filthy language. And in this context, he's not just talking about crude jokes abrasive language, expletives, though these are things that every wise Christian should get rid of, but he's also talking about abusive words designed to hurt. You see, the value of Christian speech is not merely measured by whether or not it's true, but by whether or not it hurts or it helps. See, I can tell you the truth, but I can hurt you while I do it. Amen? For every truth person, there's grace people, there's truth people. I'm a, I'm a truth guy. I always have been my whole life. And I've always taken great pride in being a truth person because I thought grace people were too gentle and too tender. Give them the truth. And what I've found in my life is that sometimes in my stance for the truth, I am so utterly insensitive to the other person. I'm not thinking through Are they even ready to hear it? Are they ready to receive it? And what tone am I speaking it in? And what words am I using? And is my timing appropriate? All of these things that you grace people are looking at me like, duh, amen? Like these are things that grace people think through all the time. Our words aren't simply measured, the value of our words aren't simply measured by whether or not they're true, but how much they help or hurt. And then he caps it off here in a list 
by telling us that we are not to lie to one another. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. He caps this list off with relational sins of lying because lying is not just the words we say, it's the words that we don't say. It's our exaggerations, our half-truths, it's our hiding and our covering of realities that we don't want others to see because we know it will hurt our relationship. I recently heard of a U.S. senator who one time said this, a lie is a A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. We tend to justify lying, and here's why, because we think it's going to cause less harm than the truth, right? That's why we do it. When your wife comes and asks you something about the outfit or whatever, you lie because you think the lie will be less harmful than the truth. When your husband asks you something about your opinion or whatever, we lie because we think it's less harmful than the truth. But the reality is it always creates a false peace. A lie always creates a false peace in a relationship that cannot last. And once the lie is exposed, it undermines the foundations of mutual trust, loving communion, and fuels all of the other sins that were listed above. That's why he says we cannot lie to each other. As harmful, or as not as harmful, but as difficult as it is to communicate the truth to one another, we must do it. But truth tellers, hear me when I say this, as I've learned from experience, learn how to share the truth in love. And Paul says here in this text, we must put these things to death. And here's why. Verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image and knowledge of its creator. These vices make indiscernible the image of God in you. Let me say that again. If you find yourself right now struggling with sexual sin and the relational sins listed in this text, These sins, if not dealt with, will make indiscernible the image of Jesus Christ in you. You cannot look like Jesus when these sexual and relational sins exist and thrive in your life and are never dealt with. If you want to look like Jesus, if you want him to reign supreme over your life, there must be a decision today. I am putting these things to death. Amen? Number three, put these sins to death because the wrath of God is coming. Put these things to death because the wrath of God is coming. Verse six says this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I know I did a lot of uh, Greek work to try to figure out what my main point was supposed to be right here. So I figured out the wrath of God is coming because of these things. Perverting our sexuality, dehumanizing others by using them for our own selfish gains, dethroning God, um, destroying community by lying and anger and wrath and malice. God says, because of these things, his wrath is coming. His wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. And I repeat myself, and I think that's important because I I would guess that there's probably a high percentage of people in this room right now that don't buy that, that don't believe that because of these kinds of sins, the wrath of God is actually coming. There was a survey taken in the 1990s of Christians who attend church. So this is all Christians. And they were asked what they believed about the character attributes of God. 
And this is what they found. 97% of Christians believed that God is forgiving. Okay, 96% believe that God is loving. But only 37% believe that God was judging and only 19 that God would one day punish. But the reality is that the wrath of God is mentioned over 200 times throughout the scriptures. And we tend to think, well, wrath is an Old Testament thing, right? That's like, that's the Old Testament God, the God of wrath and fire and brimstone. But the reality is that the New Testament actually ratchets up wrath even more. Actually makes it seem worse because we even more greater clarity about what wrath is. And here's what we need to understand about the wrath of God. It's not the same thing as the wrath of man. Amen? When we think about the wrath, we we tend to think of like the Olympian gods standing on uh, Mount Olympus, you know, with fire bolts in their hands, ready to throw fire down at people when when they mess up. And we have to understand that that is not what God is talking about when he says he has wrath. It's not this white hot anger that's just ready to explode in a moment with a fiery temper tantrum. That's not what wrath is. Biblical wrath in Romans 2, uh, chapters 1 and 2, has two elements. Write these down. The first element of God's wrath is stored up justice. That is that in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, God tells us this, that he is storing up wrath that is judgment for the day of righteous judgment. In other words, there's a future event in which God is going to to balance the scales. And because of these sexual and relational sins that distort God's image, rob people of their value, hurt other people, we should be thankful that our God is a God of wrath. Because what that means is he's not letting people get away with injustice. When you are robbed by another person of your value because they mistreat you, when you are hurt by another person's words because they devalue you, when you are treated like less than because another person doesn't see your value in Jesus Christ, you know what God's doing? He's in heaven. He's taking notes. He's taking points and he's paying attention and he's saying this, no one gets away with anything. The scales of justice will be balanced in the end, and that's what wrath means, is that he's paying attention, he's storing up wrath for this moment in time when it will all be balanced. Now, that should be good news for us because we know that our God is not indifferent to our pain and our suffering and our struggle, and when we experience injustice and when we experience hardship, our God is not indifferent. Is that good news? Guys, look at me. That's the best news on the planet. If, if, if I were a parent, if I were a parent, and one of my, and I am, <laughs> thank you for saying that, because I was about to get teary-eyed, and I, and I see one of my kids just up and smack one of my other kids, and I as a parent look at that, and I see it with my eyes, and I, and I just say, and the kid that gets smacked starts to cry, and daddy, she smacked me, and this has never happened in our home, by the way. <laughs> Did I just lie? Okay, this happens all the time. Sorry. And if I just ignore that and pretend like it didn't happen, what kind of dad would I be? Justice has to happen. And and wrath doesn't mean this temper tantrum on my daughter. Wrath means that there's, there's... Maybe I can't deal with it in, in, in the minivan when they're smacking each other in the back seat. So I just say to one of my daughters, honey, wait till we get home and we're going to deal with this. That's stored up 
justice. Amen? But here's the second thing. It's not just stored up justice. Number two, wrath is God giving us what we want. Wrath is God giving us what we want. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul says three times that God gave them over to their sinful desires. In other words, God's wrath is a turning of sinners over to themselves and to their desires without restraint. You might say, well, how is that wrath? Well, I remember uh, years ago, and I think it was a friend of mine, I think it was Brendan Loritz. Um, Brendan was talking uh, about a time in which um, I think an uncle or relative of his was, uh, was a cigar smoker. He said, you know, I wanted to try out cigars. I wanted to give it a shot. And so I, I went out and I found one. And he was a teenager and his dad's a pastor. And so obviously his dad would not be happy about this. But he thought he could sneak a cigar into the house and smoke it. So he starts, he lights this thing up. I've never tried cigars. I have no desire to, whatever. But he tried one on, starts smoking this thing. His dad walks in the room and catches him. And he walks in, his dad looks at him and he says, he sits down in his chair and he says, Go ahead, son. Smoke it. And he felt weird. He was like, no, I shouldn't, because I know you don't want me to do this. So he's like, no, no, don't put it out. Smoke it. The whole thing. And he sat there. And of course, when he started, he was like, my dad is the coolest dad on the planet. This is awesome. I can smoke cigars with my dad. And he got about halfway through, and all of a sudden, he started to feel sick. He got about two-thirds of the way through. He started to violently vomit. You might, say, you might say, how is that wrath? Google hears everything you say. <laughs> now, here's the funny thing. Brendan told me this, and I, I believe it was Brendan. He told me this. You know, I hated my dad in the moment for that, but I never wanted to smoke again. And here's how this helped me. In the moment, I hated what this thing was doing to my body. And I hated it so much that I never wanted it again. And what my dad was doing is my dad was handing me over to my sin so that I could taste the full vileness of how disgusting that sin really was so that I would never want it again. And sometimes that's what God has to do. God is redemptive in his wrath. It's not just this, it's not a temper tantrum from a divine deity who's just not getting what they want. It's redemptive. It's loving. Sometimes people have to taste the full bitterness of their sin before they realize how good God tastes. Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son, when, when, when the prodigal son goes up to his dad and he says, Dad, I, I, I don't want this anymore. I, I want to go. I want to leave. I want to run. Remember that story? What does the dad do? Does, does the dad put up a 24-hour guard in front of the door and, and, and keep his son from running away? No, he lets his son go. He, 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 he gives him over to his desire. Even though he knows his son will likely end up in a pigsty because of it, he lets him go. But it says in that text, when he was in that pigsty, the son came to his senses. And what did he do? He ran back to God. Well, I'm sorry, he ran back to his dad, who is God in the story. And what does God in the story do? What does the dad do? Here he comes. 
I told you this was going to happen, right? What does God do? When we are handed over to our sin and we finally discover how bitter and awful and disgusting it really is and we go running back to our God. What does our God do? Does he stand there with folded arms trying to tell us, I told you so, indifferent, callous? No, he runs. He runs to us and he embraces us with open arms. He's saying, son, daughter, I'm so glad you're back. I miss you so much. I love you. I care about you. Welcome back. Let's throw you a party. Praise God. This sin is disgusting. You'll never have to taste that in my presence ever again. But stay with me because I love you. Now, some of us might be wondering, well, okay, on a technical basis, do Christians ever experience the wrath of God? Because there are a lot of verses about this. I would say technically no. Um, But here's what I would say. Uh, The discipline promised in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, tastes and feels a lot like the wrath that others experience. Because sometimes God will give us over to our sin to allow us to taste how gross it really is so that we will return to him. Does that make sense? We are not destined for condemnation and judgment or eternal wrath or hell, but that doesn't mean that we should take these exhortations lightly. Because of these sins The wrath of God is coming and the discipline upon his children may happen. So church, put these sins to death. And now how do we do that? A little bit of the uh, practical. How do we put these sins to death? Verses 9 through 11. Let Let me read these. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image and the knowledge after the image of his creator. And I'm going to leave verse 11 for uh, next week. But let me focus on this. How, here's how, or how do we put these sins to death? Well, we do it by focusing on Christ. Church, hear me when I say this. How do you put your sin to death? And this is one of the biggest questions that I have wrestled with and struggled with in my life, is how do I put remaining sin in my life to death? I do it not by focusing so much on the sin, but focusing on the Savior. That's what we do. When we become so enamored and so enthralled and so blown away with with the Savior, when you you have an amazing steak, when when you go to like a a Texas roadhouse and you get like a a $15 steak and it's good, there's a lot of fat, there's a lot of gristle and it doesn't always taste the same, and then you go to a Fleming's and you have a $100 steak, and all of a sudden you get spoiled because you never want anything else, it's not that you don't like this, you just want this way more, Right? Focus on that. I was talking to my daughter this morning, and my daughter, um, who uh, has a tendency to wake up on the wrong side of the bed sometimes, and so she woke up a little bit angry this morning, frustrated. I, I don't know what was going on. And so I sat down with her on the couch, and we've had a very exhausting weekend. As I sat down on the couch with her, my, my first response was, stop being angry. Honey, just, just quit it. Why are you angry? Stop being angry. And it clicked in my head all of a sudden, Matt, that's the wrong way to do it. Honey, and I stopped myself. I can tell you're upset. I can tell something's bothering you. What's wrong? I don't know, Dad. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in my heart. She didn't say heart, but I don't know what's going on. So I said, okay, honey, let's take a moment and ask ourselves, what are we thankful for? immediate turn. Because no longer was she focused on the thing, 
but she was focused on what she was grateful for. And now she's right as rain, over here worshiping with her heart out. She's just like, yeah, Jesus. And it was awesome. And so we have to understand that, yes, there's an element in which we have to put this sin to death, but how do we do it? We, we do it by focusing on Christ. So a couple of points. Number one, you got to have a starting point. Look at what it says here in verse uh, 10. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image after its creator, you've got to be made new. You have to be restored to God's original design and intention. I remember when I was in seminary and I worked with a guy, I washed windows, and his side hobby was buying old um, uh, dilapidated cars uh, from like 1950s, 40s, 60s, those kinds of cars, and, and restoring them. And there was always that moment where I'm like, hey, Chris, what, what kind of car are you working on? And he's like, I just went out and I just bought a new Chevy or whatever. And he would start building it. And there was always a date of purchase. Let me ask you this. Has there been a date of purchase in your life where Jesus Christ, on the, you were on the slave block of sin, and Jesus looks at you and says, I want that one right there. Purchases you, sets you free from sin, sets you free to live for him, and you and your faith and trust, trust in Jesus. Has there been a date of purchase? There's got to be a date of purchase. You can't just grow up in the church. You can't just have Christian parents. You can't be baptized. That has nothing to do with the date of purchase in which Jesus Christ shed his blood for you, and by faith you believe it and receive it, and you have been purchased and set free. There's got to be a date of purchase. That's the starting point. Number two, this is a process. Look again at verse 10. It says, and having been put on the new self, you, which is being renewed, this Change this putting to death is a process daily, actively putting off sin to focus on Christ, spending time in His Word and prayer, repenting, going to church, being in Christian community, sharing your testimony. It's a process by which actively shedding the things that are sin and running to Jesus because He tastes better. Number three, cooperation. That is in verse 10, we have to put on, put off the old self, put on the new self. And that means you have to cooperate with Jesus in the process, right? 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 Okay? Too many of us want to do this just passively. We're kind of like a, a, a life raft out in the middle of the ocean just floating around with the current and just said, let go and let God. And that's not how it works in your sanctification. If you want to grow in Jesus, you've got to participate more like you're on a sailboat. You've got to poise the sails. You've got to move the jib. You've got to turn the wheel and you've got to do the thing, whatever they do on a sailboat. But ultimately, ain't nothing going to happen unless the wind comes and picks it along and moves it forward. You've got stuff you've got to do but ultimately, it's only to position you to grow in Christ, which he's the one that does that. But you got to cooperate. Number four, it's got to require knowledge. Look at what it says in verse 10, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And again, this is not about book knowledge. This isn't just go home, pick up a couple of books and, and read theology and, and then you're gonna figure out and boom, you're gonna be mature. This is you having a relationship with someone. If you got a girlfriend in your life, what now, what do you do with her? You call her on the phone, you FaceTime, you spend time together. Why? Because you wanna get to know everything about this girl that you're just enamored with, this guy that you're just enamored with because you wanna know everything about them. That's the knowledge that it's talking about. It's relational, it's intimate, it's personal. Get that with Jesus. Amen? And number five, run, 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 run. 
Verse 10 says, and having put off the old self on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of knowledge after its creator. And I just add this to say, run to God and to community. Like Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife grabbed him, what did Joseph do? He ran. When we are gripped by the temptation to offer our bodies and our members to either sin or to righteousness, we must run to two places, run to God and run to community. Run to Jesus when we fall in our sin. First John chapter 1, verse 9. I'm blanking on the verse. Someone help me out with First John 1, 9. <laughs> If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Thank you, brother. That's why we need community. Because I can't remember it all. Thank you. Community preaching. Amen. I love it. But you got to run to Jesus because when we fail, when we fall, and Jesus understands that. There's grace for that. We under, God understands you're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. So when you fall in sexual sin, when you fall in relational sin, run to Jesus. He will forgive you. We don't run away. We run too just like the prodigal son. But here's the other thing. James chapter five, verse 16 says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. And there's a communal aspect as well is that how do we keep our sin in the light so it doesn't grow? We keep it before God and we keep it before one another because in the process of keeping it before one another, we get actual real life accountability that is the primary thing that helps people get out of sin and get unstuck. That's how we heal. So I'm telling you, church, if I've seen, I've been in ministry now for 15 years. The only people that I ever see get their lives unstuck from sin are the ones that embrace intentional, accountable community. They're the only ones that get out. That's just personal pastoral insight. Church, that's why we believe in small groups. That's why we value community. And that's why we believe the church is way more than just this. So what does embracing the supremacy of Jesus Christ look like in your life? It means putting to death the sin that remains, putting on the new life in Christ, not so much by focusing on the sin, but by focusing on the Savior. So I ask you this morning, in light of God's word, how do you need to respond? Father, we love you. We praise you for your word. And God, we trust it. We know that this is hard. This is challenging. These are difficult passages of scripture that raise questions of all different kinds. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to just trust that the answers are there in scripture and not reject it simply because it's hard. Father, help us to trust you that even though it's hard, your spirit has given us the power we need to do it. So, Father, we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.